It's great to be with you today, and I appreciate the privilege of sharing the Word with you. Um, It was actually exactly five years ago today, August the 9th, uh, 2015, that I preached my last sermon at the uh, Bethel Church of the Nazarene in Nashville, Tennessee. I had served there for 25 years and four months. And they finally figured out a way to get rid of me when Pastor Mark extended a call for me to come and be associate pastor here at Xenia Nazarene, my wife's home church. So this week will be the fifth anniversary of our move here to to Xenia, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on staff with Pastor Mark and our uh, other wonderful staff ministers and the good job that they do and the camaraderie that we share. Um, When Pastor Mark started this series, Summer School, uh, I could tell by his first sermon in that series that he was looking at summer school as we looked at it when I was young. Summer school was the remedial session. It was the time when you had to make up the things that you didn't pass during the school year. But in more recent years, summer school has become like an extra term or an extra semester. Uh, not just to keep a student in line with the rest of their class moving toward graduation, but now it's to accelerate a student's education by allowing them to take a class or have an instructor that might not otherwise be available. So today, we're looking at a subject that may be unfamiliar to many of you. Let me give you some background. The Church of the Nazarene, as a denomination, was founded in 1908 when several holiness groups from around the U.S. came together in Pilot Point, Texas and formed a new denomination. There were groups from California, there were groups from the Chicago and Midwest area, groups from New England and the East Coast, and groups from Texas and Oklahoma that found out through their leadership that they had similar theological beliefs and they felt that if they merged or united into a new denomination, that they could be more effective in spreading the message of heart holiness, heart holiness. And so the Church of the Nazarene, just a little more than a century old, subscribes to a Wesleyan-Arminian theology. Now, that looks like a big term or a confusing term, but really it's just a term named after two men. John Wesley was the British founder of the Methodist movement in the 1700s, and Jacob Arminius was a Dutch reformer from the late 1500s. These are the theologians from which we draw our articles of faith, our belief system, our doctrine in the Church of the Nazarene. Arminius was a contemporary of John Calvin, and many of you have heard of Calvin because there are some denominations or churches that are referred to as Calvinist. And Arminius and Calvin disagreed on several issues. Primarily, they disagreed on predestination, irresistible grace, and eternal security. I wish I had time today to delve into that, but that'll be our class for next semester, I guess. This is Holiness 101. That would uh, be church history or or theological history. Predestination That's basically saying God has already chosen who's going to be saved and who's not. Irresistible grace says that if God has chosen you, you can't even resist His grace that's offered to you, that you lose your choice in the matter. And eternal security, we often summarize the same, once saved, always saved. Now, Arminius had uh, his his beliefs on those issues, and we subscribe to those same beliefs. Wesley was an Anglican evangelist from England who stirred a revival across uh, England that eventually spread to the colonies being settled in the New World. The Church of the Nazarene gets its name from the Nazarene. Jesus, being from Nazareth, was called the Nazarene, and that was not a complimentary term. That was derisive or insulting. To be called a Nazarene or to be from Nazareth was not a compliment at all. You remember when one of the disciples found his brother and said, Come with me, I've found the Messiah. Well, who is he? He's Jesus of Nazareth. And the brother said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's the reputation that Nazareth had. 
It was the reputation of the poor and the needy and those that were on the margins of society, those who had been forsaken, those who were second-class citizens. And the church of the Nazarene has always had a passion and a ministry for those who are on those margins of society. So the church of the Nazarene is, first of all, a Christian denomination. Now, I think you would understand that. We're a Christian church. But sometimes we use that term pretty lightly, don't we? We live in a Christian nation. <laughs> Have you watched the news lately? We live in a Christian nation. Or, well, I'm a Christian because I live in America. I'm a Christian because my parents and grandparents were Christians. I'm a Christian because I go to a Christian church. We've diluted the word Christian in many ways, haven't we? But the Church of the Nazarene is, first of all, a Christian denomination, which means along with all churches of the Christian faith, we declare the belief that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, is the only way of salvation. The word Christian, of course, comes from the word Christ. To be a Christian means to be a little Christ, a replica of Jesus. Not just to say, I'm Christian by faith, but to really be a Christian means I'm devoted to the Christ, the Christ who provides our only means of salvation. We're a Christian denomination. Church of the Nazarene is also an evangelical denomination. What does that mean? That means that we are active in evangelizing the world with the gospel of Jesus because we believe it is expedient for men and women to turn to God for salvation from their sin. We don't have we don't just have church services with open doors hoping that people will show up and hear the message. That would be nice, but there's more to it than that. We reach out we witness, we press upon the hearts of unbelievers the good news of salvation. We believe in missions, revivals, altar calls, personal evangelism, and calling people to make a decision for Christ. That's evangelism. We're an evangelical church. But we're also a holiness denomination. And that's where the subject for this summer school session takes us today. The Church of the Nazarene has 16 articles of faith. That's our doctrine, our beliefs, our creed. These fairly succinct statements have been carefully and prayerfully developed over centuries of Christian tradition and over decades of Nazarene theological discussion. Most of our articles of faith are right in line with all other Christian evangelical denominations or groups. Let's take a look, and I'll try to go through these real quick. Now, if you're really in summer school, you'd either have a laptop or a tablet, or if you're really in old times, you would be taking notes with a pen and paper, right? For, unfortunately, our school doesn't provide a free laptop to every student today. So let, let's run through these as quick as we can. The 16 articles of faith. The first one is the triune God. That simply means that we believe in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity. The second article of faith is what we believe about Jesus Christ. We believe that in the virgin birth. We believe that Jesus is not just the Son of God. He is God the Son. You say, what's the difference, Pastor? Well, you might have had people knock on your door in the past who are very zealous about their faith, but maybe a little off base. We don't like it when they knock on our door. We try not to invite them in. We try not to engage in conversation. But if you do, you can ask them, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And they'll say, oh, yes, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We're all sons of God. But I guarantee you, if you ask them, do you believe Jesus was God the Son or is God the Son? That's where they'll differ with us. So it's not just a fine point. It's a very important point that we believe Jesus Christ is God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God in three persons, Blessed Trinity. Number three, the Holy Spirit. What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? We believe He is the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of God, alive and working in the world today and alive working with men and women, convicting them of sin and drawing them to a Savior. We believe in the Holy Scripture, the Word of God. 
that's our fourth article. Number five, we believe in sin. We don't believe in doing it, but we believe in it. It's like the guy who wasn't very talkative, you know, typical guy from the, from the uh, builder generation. He had to go to church without his wife, who did all the talking, of course. He had to go to church without her one Sunday. When he got home, she was eager to hear about the church service. She said, well, did you end up making it to church? Yep. Well, was it a pretty good service? Yep. Did the preacher preach? Yep. Well, what did he preach about? Sin. Well, what did he say about it? He's again it. That was his summary of the whole church service and the whole sermon, right? We are against sin, but did you know that sin shows itself in two forms? There is original sin, the sinful nature with which we were born as a result of the fall of Adam and Eve, and there are personal sins, the sins we commit, transgressions against the known law of God. Sin is twofold. Original sin or depravity, the carnal nature, whatever title you want to give to it, and the personal or acts of sin. The next one is the atonement. Since sin is a problem, God needed to provide a remedy. And the remedy is the atonement. Our sins have been atoned for. Our sins have been paid for. The penalty has been paid by Jesus. He atoned for our sins. And somebody that was more clever than me looked at that word one day and said, Oh, so through the atonement, I can be at one with Christ. It's at one I can be reconciled again because the atonement has been provided. Number seven, provenient grace. That simply means that God's grace was at work in your life and in mine before I ever knew I was a sinner or needed to turn to Him. His, we don't just receive His grace when we're saved. His grace is already at work in every life. That's why the Bible says, I stand at the door and knock. His grace causes Him to reach out to us and gives us the ability to even turn to Him in the first place. Number eight, repentance. I think we all know that if we're going to be saved, if we're going to be forgiven for our sins, we first need to repent. That means I have to face the fact that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I have to be sorry, sorrowful or sorry for what I've done. I have to confess that to God. Now, when I was in Nashville, Trevecca Nazarene University is right there in town. So from time to time, they would assign to me a ministerial intern to work in my church and, and assist me for a semester. I was supposed to be teaching him things of pastoral ministry. So I would usually sit that student down and say, now, follow me around and watch how I do things. And you, if you do just the opposite, you'll be a successful pastor. That's the way I taught them. But I, I had one of my interns preaching one Sunday, and he was really getting into it. You know, he was getting his experience preaching. And he said, and when you come to Jesus, you do a complete 360. <laughs> now, wait a minute. If sin is back here, and Jesus is up there, and I'm walking... Oh, sin's over here, I'm sorry. Jesus is here. And I'm walking in sin, I'm walking to destruction and I want a change of life, I better not do a 360. I'll be going the same way I started. No, we do a 180. We turn around from sin. That's what repentance is. I'm forsaking my sin. I'm sorry. Not, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I did it in the first place. I'm sorry I broke relationship with you. I'm sorry that I've transgressed your law, God. Now I'm turning to you. I'm doing my 180. That's what repentance is. The next one, number nine, looks a little complicated, but really we could summarize those three big words in one word, salvation. When you're saved, when you're converted, when you're born again, three things happen. You, don't, you might not even know they happened, but when you look back on it, you know they happened. First of all, your life is justified. Your life is set straight. Remember, anybody remember using an old typewriter? You could justify the left-hand side of the paper and then type, 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 ding! And then if you're lucky enough to have an electric one, you pressed return and it, was zzz, and it went back to where it was justified. But the next line you typed didn't end at the same place the first line you typed. You couldn't justify the right-hand column. Remember how this, this would end here and then this one would go out a little bit and this one, and you'd have to hyphenate to try to keep it as straight as you could? 
Does anybody have any idea what I'm talking about? Because now you can justify both sides. You can put it in the middle. You can center everything. You can even get it to type backwards from the right-hand side. It's amazing. But when God straightens us out, when He saves us, He justifies us. He sets us straight on the straight and narrow. We're justified. And we're regenerated. We're born again. We're made new. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Praise the Lord. Yeah. We're regenerated. And we're adopted into the family of God. Now, believe it or not, some of you probably wonder when I got saved, if I got saved. But I actually went to the altar for the first time when I was five years old. My dad was a preacher. And my mom was I was sitting by my mom in the second row, and when the altar call came, I asked my mom if I could go up and pray, and she went up and prayed for me. Now, I'm a five-year-old, so here was my prayer. Lord, you know what an awful sinner I've been. All the lives I've ruined. And Lord, I need to be justified. Oh, Lord, justify me right now. Oh, thank you, Lord. And now, Lord, now that I'm justified, I need to be regenerated. I need to be born again. Oh, Lord, would you do that new work with it? Oh, thank you, Lord, I'm regenerated. And now, Lord, if you have time, I'd like to be adopted. And I didn't pray like that, and neither did you. You just said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I have disobeyed you. I repent. I confess. Please forgive my sins and be my Savior. But in that experience you were justified regenerated and adopted now i don't know if you're supposed to get blessed over theology but i just got blessed when i realized what god has done for me set me straight made me new adopted me into his family praise the lord number 10 Holiness and entire sanctification, and that's the subject of our lesson today. So we'll be back, number 10. Number 11, the church. What do we believe about the church? What's the purpose of the church? What's the mission of the church? Why do we even have the church? Number 12, baptism. Yes, we believe in baptism. We have a baptistry right over here under the platform, and we use it for immersion baptism uh, four, five, six times a year. But we also believe that infants can be baptized if the parents so choose. We believe you can be baptized by sprinkling or by pouring. And in my years of ministry, I've only done each of those once. Each, each of those once. I sprinkled water on a man in a nursing home from a Dixie cup and baptized him in his nursing home bed. And I'll tell you, he believed he was just as baptized if we'd put him under because it was the position of his heart that it was all about. And at a youth camp where they didn't have a baptistry or a lake or a creek, we got a pitcher of water and poured it over a girl on the sidewalk and said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the method isn't as important as your heart and your profession of faith. Baptism. Number 13, the Lord's Supper. Of course, we believe in the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are our only two sacraments. And it is a sacred thing when we have the opportunity to receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in divine healing. We also believe that God gives wisdom and skill and knowledge to medical professionals. So don't ever deny the opportunity to have medical help. But God can also divinely heal supernaturally heal uh, when he chooses to number 15 is the second coming of Christ now some of you end times folks you're going oh let's hear that one can we have a separate class on that what does the church of the Nazarene believe about the second coming of Christ and the end times why doesn't pastor Mark ever preach about that why don't we have classes with all the charts strung out to tell us exactly how it's going to happen Okay, I'm going to give it to you right now. You don't have to pay extra for this. Here's what the Church of the Nazarene believes about the second coming. Three things. One is, Jesus said, I will come again. Two is, Jesus said, nobody knows when. Jesus said, you be ready. 
Oh, I know, we could hash it all out and try to discover all the hidden truths in the book of Revelation, whether we're amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, rapture, second coming, whether heaven's going to be way up out there or whether Jesus is going to create a new heaven and earth right here. It doesn't matter. Are you going to be ready? That's the question. And number 16 is resurrection, judgment, and destiny. That is what happens in the end times. The dead will be raised, everyone will be judged, and assigned an eternal destiny. Sixteen articles of faith, and as I said, just about all of those are in line with any other Christian evangelical denomination. And so, we're not that unusual as the Church of the Nazarene. It seems that the reason we have so many denominations and religious groups, though, is because there is some doctrine or some belief or some article of faith that sets it apart, that makes it distinctive in some way. Well, the distinctive doctrine of the Church of the Nazarene is that article number 10, Christian holiness and entire sanctification. Now, I heard about a professor in a religion class at a Nazarene university and the religion majors were getting the first day of class, and he said, how many of you can tell me what the cardinal doctrine of the Church of the Nazarene is? Well, many hands went up. And he called on the first guy, and he said, the cardinal doctrine of the Church of the Nazarene is entire sanctification. The professor said, wrong! What? The cardinal doctrine of any Christian denomination is that Jesus is the only way of salvation. That's the cardinal doctrine, the one that we can't live without. The one that we can all agree on is that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the way. Jesus provides our salvation. That's a Christian denomination, and that's a cardinal doctrine. But the distinctive doctrine, the one that sets some holiness groups apart, is this belief in Christian holiness and entire sanctification. Now, essentially every Christian evangelical group believes in holiness and sanctification. What does the word sanctification mean? It's the process of being made holy. To sanctify means to make holy. Don't get, don't get uh, confused or, or down because of the, the terminology. To be sanctified means to be made holy. In the Old Testament, Remember the temple, how special it was? There was the Holy of Holies. There was the altar. There were the horns of the altar, what the priest could grab onto as he prayed for the sins of the people. There were candlesticks and, and uh, bowls and, and various vessels. There was incense. Uh, all these things that made the tabernacle or the temple holy. And those articles in the temple were sanctified or set apart for a special use. Remember when the sins of the people were atoned for through the slaying of a sacrificial animal? Whether it was a lamb, a bull, a goat, the, the animal was brought in, the priest would actually slit the animal's throat and let the blood drip into a special vessel or bowl. That bowl was set apart or sanctified for that use. The priest didn't clean that bowl up and say, okay, tomorrow I'll eat my cocoa puffs out of that. It was sanctified. It was set apart. It was special. And in the same way, as Christians, we're to be sanctified, set apart for a special use. Not just to be like everybody else. Not just for a common usage, but a special calling on our lives from the God who has set us apart and made us holy. Thank the Lord. So how can we disagree with statements in the Bible like, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That's in Leviticus 11.45. And the Apostle Peter reaffirmed that passage in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 16. Be ye holy as I am holy. Or what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Or the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So just about every Christian evangelical group believes in holiness and sanctification. 
the question is, the disagreement comes in how and when can we be made holy? How and when can we be sanctified? Now, there are some who believe that as long as we remain in our humanity, weighed down with this earthen vessel, or as one version calls it, this cracked pot, as long as we're in this body with its limitations and a mind that is imperfect, they believe we can never be holy and we certainly cannot be sanctified in this life. They believe that this will only happen when we receive our glorified body, when we're released from this human condition. Now, others believe that you are sanctified when you're saved and you spend the rest of your life striving to be holy, working hard to impress and please God and to become more like Jesus until finally it's all over and God lets you in. The Church of the Nazarene in Article 10 believes that somewhere in the middle of that, in this life, we can be sanctified wholly. Before we read Article 10, let me state that we believe in the twofold nature of sin. Now, we already alluded to that uh, when we saw the article of faith that said sin, original, and personal. The twofold nature of sin. Original sin, depravity, carnal nature, the sin we inherited from the fall. That's one nature of sin. The other are the acts of personal sin which we commit. The things that transgress the known law of God. Basically, you can sum up sins in this phrase. If God says don't, and I do, I've sinned. If God says do, and I don't, I've sinned. Say, Pastor Mike, that sounds pretty harsh because there's so many commandments and there's so many things that God wants us to do. Well, let me ask you as parents, if you give your child a chore or an assignment or an order to do something between the time you tell them and bedtime tonight, and after they've gone to bed, you see that they didn't do what they were assigned to do, don't you think they've disobeyed you? Well, they might say, I forgot, or I got busy, or other things came up. But they disobeyed. They were told clearly what was expected of them, and they disobeyed. Or if you tell your child, don't do that, don't go there, don't even think about that, and you find out that they did anyway, like the missing cookies, or any other little transgression, you believe that child has disobeyed you as the parent, and there's punishment for that. And so, our personal acts of sin are the things that we've done to transgress the known law of God. And that original sin is the sinful nature within us that made us do it in the first place. I think I've told you before that original sin shows itself within the first 12 months, certainly within the first two years of a baby's life. One of the first words every baby learns is, no, right? Or mine. Because the carnal nature, original sin, has within us this desire that I be number one. My rights have to be observed and celebrated. I have to get my way. The world revolves around me. When Eve took that apple or whatever fruit it was and took a bite of it, it wasn't about eating. It wasn't about tasting something. The temptation was, you'll be as smart as God. You'll be on the same level with Him. Surely you won't die. The temptation is always about me. What I want. I mean, why would anybody steal? That's breaking a commandment, right? Because I don't want to do the work that it requires to get that for myself. So I'll just take the easy way out and I'll take it for myself. Do you hear all the I and my and me and myself in that explanation? It's all about me. Why would you lie? Bear false witness. Because it'll make me look better. Or it'll cover my tracks. Or I'll fake everybody out. 
after all, I don't want to admit I was wrong or I was guilty. I, I, I. At the center of every sin is I. Think about it. Original sin. And so if sin has a twofold nature, then it follows that the work of full salvation has a twofold remedy. And I'm so glad for that today. We need forgiveness for the acts of sin that we've committed, and we need cleansing for the sinful nature that we have inherited. Now, I've had a statement in my sermon files and in my Bible for many years, and I've never been able to determine the source of this statement. But someone back in the day summarized our theology of salvation in these potent words, one sentence. Let's look at it. God saves men from sin to holiness. We need to be saved from something, our sins, to something, holiness. God saves men from sin to holiness through faith in Jesus Christ by the inward action of the Holy Spirit. Now look, already we've involved all three persons of the Trinity. God saves men through faith in Christ by the action of of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? In two works of grace, because sin has a twofold nature, sin has to be dealt with in two works of grace and in subsequent supervision and discipline. I'm so glad for that last phrase because we don't just get saved and sanctified and quit. We need further supervision and discipline in our spiritual life. Let me read the whole thing without stopping this time. Go back. God saves men from sin to holiness through faith in Jesus Christ by the inward action of the Holy Spirit in two works of grace and in subsequent supervision and discipline. With all that in mind, let's read Article 10. Now you can find this on our denomination's website. You can even download a copy of the Manual of the Church of the Nazarene, which has the articles of faith and all of our polity and government and all that kind of uh, stuff that, that pastors and, and district superintendents need to know. But uh, Article of Faith number 10 is our distinctive doctrine. We believe that sanctification is the work of God which transforms believers into the likeness of Christ. It is rot. And I remember an English teacher when I was in high school said, who knows what the root word of the word rot is? And none of us could come up with it. She said, well, who knows what the root word of sot is? is s-o-u-g-h-t none of us could come up with it well the root word of sod is seek it's just one of those strange english deals like bring and brought seek and sought work and rot so this is wrought or worked by god's grace through the holy spirit in initial sanctification or regeneration simultaneous with justification remember that getting saved so the work that he does starts with initial sanctification moves to entire sanctification and the continued perfecting work of the Holy Spirit culminating someday in glorification when you get your new glorified body in glorification we are fully conformed to the image of the Son we believe that entire sanctification is that act of God, subsequent or after regeneration, or after being saved, by which believers are made free from original sin or depravity and brought into a state of entire devotion to God and the holy obedience of love made perfect. It is wrought, or again, it is worked by the baptism with or infilling of the Holy Spirit and comprehends in one experience the cleansing of the heart from sin and the abiding, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, empowering the believer for life and service. Entire sanctification is provided by the blood of Jesus. It is wrought instantaneously by grace through faith, preceded by entire consecration. And to this work and state of grace, the Holy Spirit bears witness. This experience is also known by various terms representing its different phrase, phases, such as Christian perfection, perfect love, heart purity, the baptism with or infilling of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the blessing, and Christian holiness. Stop right there just for a moment. Initial sanctification. So when I 
when I'm saved, when I'm converted, when I'm born again, God does his work of initial sanctification. What does that mean? I used to have no holiness. I used to be sinful. I asked God to forgive me. I repented of my sins and he forgave me. I'm more holy now than I've ever been in my life. Am I as holy as I ought to be? Probably not. But compared to what I used to be, I'm holy. I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. The Holy Spirit is at work in my life. Initial sanctification, the beginning. And then as I walk with God, as I study His Word, as I hear sermons, as I go to small group in Sunday school, as I read Christian books, as I listen to Christian preachers, radio or whatever, or YouTube, uh, as I grow in my experience with Christ, the Holy Spirit teaches me and disciplines me and helps me grow and improve. And at some point, after initial sanctification, it could be right here. See that? The big move I just made? Initial sanctification, I got saved. I've grown this much so far. Or maybe I'm still growing way down here and the Holy Spirit says, there's more for you. You don't have to struggle with this sin problem like you're doing. You can relinquish yourself totally to my authority and I can help you settle this war, this spiritual war that's going on inside you. You say, what spiritual war, Pastor? Have you ever read Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul himself who saw Christ on the road to Damascus when he said, the things I want to do, I'm powerless and can't do them. And the things I ought not to do, I'm weak and I give in anyway. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's how serious it was for the Apostle Paul. He was struggling back and forth. I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm following Christ. I know my sins are forgiven. But I'm not always able. I don't have the power. I don't have the ability to totally follow Him in every circumstance. I need something more. And at some point, God has provided a way for us to come to Him, surrender ourselves fully to His authority. That's called consecration. You bring yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So initial sanctification required repentance. Entire sanctification requires consecration. And once we're sanctified, we continue to walk in the light and the knowledge that He gives us. We continue to do His will. We continue to grow in our faith as we discipline ourselves and follow Him as His disciple. Let's continue with Article 10. We believe that there is a marked distinction between a pure heart and a mature character. The former, the pure heart, is obtained in an instant, the result of entire sanctification. The latter, the mature character, is the result of growth in grace. And so, when you come to Christ and consecrate yourself and submit to His authority and ask Him to do His cleansing work of entire sanctification, you are made pure in an instant. You say, Pastor, I just can't get that. I know it's a mystery, isn't it? Except for those of you that are professional electricians, how are those lights shining? It's a mystery to me. I mean, I know there's a generator somewhere, and I know there's lots of wire, and I know Thomas Edison, was that his name? Made that little filament so the light bulbs would work. But it's a mystery to me. How can I be made pure in an instant? Well, how can I be saved from my sins in an instant? I can't figure that one out either. It's the work of God. What's wrong with having a mystery here and there when it comes to the supernatural, awesome power of God? And so, when I surrender myself, consecrate myself, I'm made pure in an instant. But I've got a lifetime of maturing to do. That takes some time. And there might be some mistakes along the way. Someone else might say, so, once your heart's made pure, once you're entirely sanctified, you can never sin again? Sadly, that's not true. You can. Because God doesn't take away our free moral agency or our right to choose. God doesn't take away our 
free will. God doesn't keep us from raising our puny little fist in his face and saying, no, I don't want to do what you want. I don't want to live for you anymore. As absurd as that seems. But we need this work of entire sanctification just as much as we need the work of initial sanctification or salvation. And we commit ourselves to a lifetime of maturing in in our faith. We believe that the grace of entire sanctification includes the divine impulse to grow in grace as a Christ-like disciple. However, this impulse must be consciously nurtured and careful attention given to the requisites and processes of spiritual development and improvement in Christ-likeness of character and personality. Without this purposeful endeavor, one's witness may be impaired and the grace itself frustrated and ultimately lost. I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene. I went every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every revival service, every zone rally, every missionary meeting, every uh, NYPS, Nazarene Young People's Society, Junior Fellowship. I went to it all. One of the most interesting services was Wednesday night testimony. My dad would give a little devotional after a couple of songs. Then he'd say, who has a testimony tonight? And he'd try to encourage people to stay positive and to talk about something that God had done in recent days to, to show himself faithful and answer to prayer, some, some area of victory in their lives. But invariably, there was some old saint who would struggle to his feet man or woman, and say, well, praise God, I'm saved, sanctified, and on my way to heaven. Anybody ever hear a testimony like that? And that's basically about all they were good for. They were saved, initial sanctification. They were sanctified, entire sanctification, and they're on their way to heaven. But there wasn't much maturity. There wasn't much growth in grace. They didn't follow the necessary requisites and processes of spiritual development. And it's like their spiritual growth had been stunted at some point because they didn't continue to pursue a vibrant, active life with Christ. Yes, it's necessary if we're going to mature in our faith. Now, I realize that in one session I'm trying to teach you or refresh you on a subject that should take an entire term or semester. There will not be an exam at the end of today's sermon. But every one of us will face a final exam one day to determine whether we learned this lesson or not. Most people here today would testify that they have been saved, converted, born again, redeemed. But our challenge is this question. Have you been sanctified? Have you come to God in full surrender, total consecration? empty of self and fully devoted to God to have that sinful nature cleansed by the work of the Holy Spirit to live a holy life. What is holiness? The best definition I've ever found is just one word. Christ-likeness. Now, if you have a word program on your computer and you're typing a document and you type in the word Christ-likeness, whether you capitalize it or not, your spell check won't recognize it. You know why? It's not a very common term, is it? The world doesn't know anything about Christ-likeness. They don't know that term. But every Christian should know that term because that should be our goal, our desire, to be like Jesus. There's an old hymn that says, I have one deep, supreme desire that I might be like Jesus. Holiness is Christ-likeness. We might need to bring back the WWJD bracelets again to ask, what would Jesus do? Am I responding to this person, this situation, this challenge, this demand? Am I responding like Jesus would with a Christ-like attitude? Or am I caught up so much in today's radical, toxic individualism that I must have my own way and refuse to submit to any other authority but my own. Wow, look at that phrase. Radical, toxic individualism. Have any of you seen any of that going on these last few months? Individualism. 
Oh yeah, it's all about me and my rights. That's why there are arguments at the checkout counter or the door of the store or, or uh, people standing up for their rights. Individualism. Now I know we all worry about our rights being taken away from us, but again, the old question, what would Jesus do? I'm not even going to mention specific situations. I just want you to put whatever situation comes to your mind in that context. What would Jesus do? Holiness is Christ-likeness. It's not radical, toxic individualism. When you have faith in Christ, when you submitted to His authority, you walk like Jesus, you talk like Jesus, you think like Jesus, you act like Jesus. People see Jesus in you. They don't see toxic individualism. Well, you know how I am, Pastor. I just speak my own mind. Well, why don't you get saved and sanctified and learn to submit to the authority of Jesus who says to temper your conversation with grace? Well, I, I stand up for what I believe. Is it the right thing that you believe in? Or is it just your own personal opinion? Standing up for the things of Christ is one thing. Standing up for the things of self is completely different. Radical, toxic, evangel uh, excuse me, individualism can only be countered with total, loving surrender to the authority of Jesus. See the difference? Radical, toxic individualism. No, total, loving surrender to the authority of Jesus. If your sins have been forgiven, if you're walking daily in the life of Christ, living in the light you have received, then the question is, have you surrendered yourself fully to the will of God to be sanctified holy, H-O-L-Y, and holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y? Are you filled with the Spirit of Christ to the point that people see Him instead of you? Do they see a Christ-like attitude and lifestyle instead of your own design? This would be an excellent time to humble yourself, to take spiritual inventory, to open yourself to the prompting and authority of the Holy Spirit, and seek the work of entire sanctification. In total consecration or surrender, offer yourself as a living sacrifice and ask for His cleansing work in your life. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgive our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. It says if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. God has provided. We need to seek Him and seek all that He has for us. Bow your heads with me, please. Lord, this hasn't been an easy sermon to preach and probably hasn't been that easy to listen to. But I believe your truth has been proclaimed today. I thank you for the Church of the Nazarene and our articles of faith. I thank you, Lord, that they are biblically based and that each of those articles has numerous scripture references after it, uh, supporting it and affirming that, uh, that it comes right from your word. I thank you, Lord, for this distinctive doctrine that you don't want us just to remain in that sinful condition. You want to give us victory. You want to give us freedom. You want to give us purity. You want to lead us to maturity. And it's all possible if we'll come to you and know that our sins are forgiven. And then if we'll fully devote and consecrate ourselves to you, we can experience that wonderful work of entire sanctification. I pray that you'll work in every life that's here today, whether they've heard this for the first time or they've heard it many times before. For those that are saved and sanctified, I pray that this will reaffirm their position. Your spirit is faithful to bear witness to our spirit that we belong to you and that all is well. If this is new to someone, I pray that they'll take time to process it and let your Holy Spirit teach them the truth 
that they need to apply to their lives. For those that are ready even now to say, Lord, I know my sins are forgiven, but I, I want this struggle to be eliminated. I want to be fully devoted to you. I want to walk the way you walk and live the way you live. Lord, help me as I surrender myself to you to experience the cleansing of the Holy Spirit and help me to walk in maturity toward Christ-likeness. Whatever the prayer is today, Lord, it may be some other area of spiritual growth that you want to speak to someone about today. You might be putting a your finger on an area that needs to improve or change or something that needs to be eliminated from our lives, a relationship that needs to be restored, forgiveness that needs to be asked for. Whatever the situation, Lord, speak to us now in these closing moments and help us to obey you. We'll wait just a moment in silence as you have this opportunity to pray. You're always welcome to come to the front and pray. We have altars that are open as kneeling benches we're not receiving communion today which is a means of grace but you can have an encounter with christ right where you are he's reaching out to you if you'll just open your heart to him Lord, I thank you for providing everything that we need. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for the work of entire sanctification, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you walk with us and talk with us day by day and lead us to maturity. I pray that your power will be evident in every one of us, that we'll have victory over sin and live a life that will be totally pleasing to you. Encourage your people. Strengthen us and help us to be your representatives everywhere we go. Thank you for the privilege of coming to church today, and thank you for the privilege of knowing you and having the Holy Spirit within us. We love you, Lord, and we're thankful that you hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.